Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello, I'm Dr. Peter Doran. For this podcast, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by France's leading advocate for a recognition of the rights of nature. Valérie Cabinis is also closely involved in the international campaign for a recognition of the crime of ecocide. In a wide-ranging discussion, I was joined by my colleague, Dr. Rachel Killian, and by a number of guests online. We caught up with Valérie on her way to a special meeting of the Rights of Nature Tribunal, which took place alongside COP26 in Glasgow. Yeah, I'm Valérie Cabanes. I'm a, I'm a lawyer in um, international uh, law and uh, and specifically on humanitarian law and um, and human rights. Um, it's interesting because uh, this uh, rights of nature movement uh, is more and more linked with uh, social justice and with uh, the human rights movement and. For 20 years, I worked in a humanitarian uh, mission around the world. Uh, I was with the people, you know, uh, in poverty, uh, child trafficking uh, um, campaigns. And uh, I worked also with um, Handicap International, like in Pakistan, Afghanistan, in Uganda, in Cambodia. In, uh, and uh, it happened uh, in 2006 that I shifted uh, and I started a PhD in legal anthropology and I studied for three years. My field research was uh, in Quebec, North Quebec, with the Innu people who are native Indians. And when I was there, they were fighting against uh, a huge uh, hydroelectric dam that was planned to be built on their wild uh, and ancestral river. And I realized at that moment uh, how protecting uh, their fundamental rights and also as indigenous people was totally linked of uh, protecting the environment and their own uh, ancestral lands. And uh, I stopped this PhD because I was not natural anymore. You know, when you're an anthropologist, you have to be natural. And uh, in fact, I became an activist on their side, along their side. And then uh, I did the same kind of uh, work um, following the project of building a huge dam in the Amazon and, uh, and I campaigned uh, along Kasik Raoni, who is an indigenous leader from the Kayako, Kayapo people, against the Belo Monte Dam. Uh, it was before Jay Bolsonaro, it was when Diema um, Rousseff was in power. And uh, I went to uh, the UN, I went to the European Parliament. Uh, I, you know, I made a name and shame campaign against uh, industrial um, companies, French companies that were working uh, on this project in the Amazon, like Alstom. And 
while I was giving a conference with Cassie Crowney, uh, a British lady came to me. It was in Paris. It was in 2011, I think. And uh, she spoke to me about uh, a Scottish lawyer named Polly Higgins. And uh, she said, you know, someone is working on fixing this, I would say, this gap impunity that the corporates have with commercial law today and where they can, you know, work without taking into account human rights and environmental rights. And I met Polly uh, in August 2012, and we decided to launch a European citizen initiative to recognize the crime of ecocide. Uh, in, a, in a European directive. And that was really a citizen initiative. I was the first and the only French starting that in France. And there were six fellows from other countries, from uh, UK, from Germany, from Austria, from uh, Spain, Portugal. Uh, uh, and for one year, we, we launched this uh, European citizen initiative. And, and at that moment, I managed to raise the debate on at least on ecocide, crimes against uh, nature uh, in 2013. And then I was asked to write books on this. And so I, I made a research and a study of how to fix international law in order to protect again peace, because that was the main goal of the United Nations when it was created. But we can see today that uh, commercial law, uh, corporate law, um, is is working uh, in parallel of international law and, and fix the rules. And and also I study the story of the ecocide concept because it's an old concept. It started uh, even before the, the Vietnam War, but it was really the moment where uh, it was publicly raised as an issue and said, okay, what happened in Vietnam with the Agent Orange and the, the, the U.S. Army was an ecocide because it destroyed the environment uh, and it destroyed the lives of many generations to come because still people are sick today because the environment is contaminated and polluted. And uh, when it was discussed in the 90s, when uh, we were... Uh, Drafting the, the Rome Statute, the, the ancestor of the Rome Statute, which is the statute founding the International Criminal Court, some countries wanted ecocide to be recognized, uh, and at least crimes against the environment, the worst crimes against the environment. And at the end, only crimes against the environment in war times uh, has been recognized. And due to the, the lobbying, I would say, uh, of few countries, UK was part of it, France was part of it, the US, um, and uh, if I remember well, in the Netherlands, uh, France, I know why, because they wanted to keep their nuclear uh, power energy as a, you know, and, and that's dangerous because it can have consequences on future generations too if there is an accident. So it stayed like that. And it took few lawyers, Polly was one of them, but there was a lot before and, and there was some after her, uh, lobbying to, to push forward the recognition of a fifth crime against peace and human security. And we are at a point today, 
because I continued this campaign uh, within the Endecoside uh, on Earth movement, which is a citizen movement worldwide. I drafted the definition of ecocide in 2015 with uh, three other lawyers, uh, where I proposed to use the planetary boundaries concept, which is a, a theory which was proposed by the Stockholm Resilience Center, explaining that we should not cross the ecological limits uh, of the planet uh, unless we we take the risk to uh, to fall in a in a inhospitable. Uh, a future and inhospitable planet. And so I propose to use that tool to define the crime because it's very complicated to define the crime uh, as far as when you say widespread, when you say long-term, what does it mean? Few months, decades, uh, generations. But uh, we are not strong enough to be heard everywhere. Uh, even if I gave the definition, even I remember to Ban Ki-moon at the COP21 when I met him, and to the French president, François Hollande, to propose that he, you know, he carried the, the project during COP21 um, uh, climate agreements in, in Paris. And he answered to me, I was at the Elysium at that time, and said to me, I cannot do both, you know. It's very important, but I first have to get the climate agreements and then I can think about ecocide. I said, no, but this is the same story, you know. You, you need binding. Uh, um, binding constraints if you want really the agreement to be to be uh, respected and we can see today that <laughs> because we have a should instead of a shall in the text it's not binding at all even if there are a lot of climate cases uh, around the world trying to to make it binding and um, and then I worked with the Stop Ecosign Foundation when uh, Polly uh, passed away uh, in 2019. I started to work with the Stop Ecosign Foundation. Uh, and last, last year, um, Greta Thunberg won a prize uh, in Portugal, which was quite a big prize in, I would say, money, 1 million euro. And she decided to help the Stop Ecosign Foundation carry on uh, the, the campaign. And uh, at the same time, the Pope, Francis, uh, took a stand on the ecocide also the same year. And also uh, in Gen General Assembly uh, of State Parties at the ICC in December, uh, two countries, Vanuatu and the Maldives, for the first time uh, requested to recognize the crime of ecocide uh, at the General Assembly. So there was kind of turning point at that moment. And I was then uh, appointed to be part of a panel of 12 lawyers uh, around the world from all the continents. And we worked together for six months and we released uh, a proposal of definition last June, on the 22nd of June, which um, got a real uh, audience because more than 100 countries spoke about it. And, uh, and Belgium... Uh, is now the first country uh, who officially decided to uh, to push forward the, the recognition of the crime and uh, and took a stand also at the ICC General Assembly and now is voting even to recognize the crime at the national level. So that's the story on ecocide. But ecocide is about the worst crime, which means that it has the same... Uh, 
the same, um, I would say, strength. Or same standing. Person. Yeah. That uh, genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes. And uh, how do we deal with, um, you know, the fact that the system uh, is still destroying nature, sometimes slowly, sometimes on, on small areas, but uh, specifically because uh, environmental law uh, has been, you know, imagined and, and drafted by Western countries which are disconnected in law uh, to nature. Uh, Western countries uh, have really proposed um, a legal system to the world that puts, of course, human being uh, in the center and its dignity, which is very important, but forgot that we are interconnected. Uh, to the to the well-being of the non-humans, of the ecosystems, of the species, and that we cannot protect our fundamental rights, especially today with the climate crisis and the ecological crisis and the and the six mass extinction we are already engaged in. We cannot protect fundamental rights of human beings and especially for the next generation, which is the right to health, the right to life, of course, but uh, but the rights to clean hair. Uh, water uh, habitat, and uh, and because we we never adopted this ecosystemic vision, and we don't have time to discuss about it. But for me, it's really rooted in in our religious culture and in our, in our philosophical culture, where we believe for you know uh, one thousand, two thousand years that we were the masters. Uh, we are the son of gods and, and everything which, and it's in the Bible, everything which flies, grow, swim, is at our service. And, and so I, I think we really need a paradigm shift uh, to, to reconnect ourselves to nature, to, to understand that we are part of nature. And, uh, and that's why at the same time, since 10 years, I was campaigning on the crime of ecocide. I felt that it was needed also to change the public law and, and recognize the rights of nature. And when I speak about the rights of nature, it's not the rights of nature against the rights of humans. It's first recognizing that human is one of the species on earth, that he has rights, is depending on, on the well-being of other uh, species around the world and, uh, and is depending on the, on the well-being of the Earth system in itself and all the subsystems that make the Earth system uh, sustaining life, which is the biosphere, the hydrosphere, the cryosphere, the lithosphere. And these systems, and that's how we define now the, the crime of ecocide, it's a crime against the Earth system functionings uh, which is a shift also, even the way we define the crime of ecocide, we see that it's really a crime against life, against nature in itself. Uh, in the proposal we made in June, the idea is really to, to understand that we have to, you have to imagine like concentric cycles. At the moment, we have the human rights, the corporate rights, and sometimes in some countries, nature rights, which is not really, uh, but there are like two, three spheres. What we need today is recognizing the rights of the earth system, so the rights of nature, 
which protect human, human rights. And then commercial law should be at the service of the other two level. And of course, it doesn't please the, the people who are making profit on the planet and on the people. So it's tricky. Uh, but there is a kind of, uh, as for the crime of ecocide, I feel that there is a, a kind of consciousness rising around that because even if it started in the US and South America, uh, in the US in 2006, the first city who recognized the crime of ecocide was in the US, in Pennsylvania. It's in Tamaka. And then Ecuador recognized the crime, uh, the, the rights of nature in its constitution in 2008, and then Bolivia the next year. Um, we can see today that through different means, which is political choices, uh, citizen requests, but also court cases, and this is very interesting. The judges around the world are advancing the rights of nature. It happened in India. It happened in Colombia. Um, uh, and they are the ones who, facing a problem, uh, say, okay, we have to give a legal personhood to the Amazon forest, or we have to give a legal personhood to rivers, or to mountains, or to glaciers. And in Bangladesh, for example, the court decided that it will grant a legal personhood to the all rivers in Bangladesh, which are at least 450, and during the rainy season, 700. So there are different ways to, to advance that and, and, and to, to fit in the local culture, the local philosophy also. And it's also rising in, in Europe, and this is very inspiring because, of course, we are the last continent. Uh, Uganda has a law in Africa now uh, on the rights of nature, and there are a lot of uh, uh, regulations around many countries in Africa about sacred sites that they call, uh, that they want to protect. We have also uh, rights of nature now in, in New Zealand, in, in Australia, uh, and as I said, in Asia, and Europe is the last continent. Because, of course, for me, the, the, the gap in the law came from the one who framed the law, and we are, we, are, we are those ones, the colonizers, clearly. Uh, but it's really inspiring, and that's why I'm, I'm today uh, with you in, um, in North Island, because uh, I wanted to meet you know, the people who are advancing the rights of nature, and I'm preparing an, an exhibition in France uh, to show in Europe, everywhere where it's popping, and, and the, the tracks that, uh, or the, the tricks, I will say even, uh, that people use to advance the rights of nature, and there are plenty of experiences uh, popping everywhere. And in France, it's really uh, in the debate. It's even now in the programs of few candidates at the presidential election that we will have in six months. That was the case five years ago at the last election with the crime of ecocide. There were five parties speaking about it. So for me, it was kind of okay. The discussion is there, and now it's the rights of nature. And uh, so I'm very, yeah, enthusiastic. I know that, you know, it's not, um, uh, it will take a lot of time. But what is important to me is really that when we start to think about, is it possible, like Christopher Stone was saying in 72, 
uh, that uh, trees could, you know, stand in court? Uh, is it possible that uh, a river uh, can stand in court or can be part of the discussion at the pu public policy level, like in governing governance uh, um, work in a council, in a municipality, at the national level? Then people start to reconnect to their inner nature, which is being part of nature. And this is the main, uh, the main point, I would say, that makes me keep on because I can see the people are, are realizing that and also are realizing that recognizing the rights of nature is also uh, protect, protecting social justice, climate justice environmental justice and that everything is is linked intertwined and that we should not um, uh, I mean we, we should think um, as if it has to be dealt separately we really have today and it's Glasgow has started and and this is I would say the main message today with the COP26 is we cannot separate climate crisis to the to the the biodiversity crisis and we cannot separate those two uh, to the to the social crisis. That's great. Thank you very much. Um, I know that you've spent time with uh, colleagues in uh, Derry and Donegal who are working on these issues and they have managed to get uh, Derry and Straban Council to adopt a program of work and a possible commitment to a declaration. From your conversations, I think you've met some of the council officers and the activists. Could you comment just on the significance of that and maybe some of the the steps that they could take now, maybe drawing on other European examples, what steps they might take to really embed this conversation and begin to codify a uh, commitment to the rights of nature? Yeah, I w I'm really impressed because it's. Uh, I, I met a lot of activists and like Maeve O'Neill, who is an activist, but at the same time was uh, in the council and she managed to get uh, the vote uh, with, uh, if I understood well, a lot of uh, parties represented within the council itself. So, it, you know, it crossed the boundaries of, of uh, ideologies and parties, which I think she did really a great job on that. Of course, when I met the legal advisor, um, he was really interested in the, in the concept, but trying to see if it can fit in, uh, I would say, the, uh, the regulations uh, that how you know, democracy as to, to be implemented or how decision could be implemented. So we had a, a great discussion on this because um, just before coming, I was in, uh, I met uh, Lyon Mayor. Lyon is the second biggest city in France. And uh, the mayor of Lyon decided to, uh, as in Derry, uh, to sign an appeal to grant legal personhood to the Rhone River. The Rhone River is a huge river, 700 kilometers, from a glacier in the Alps in Switzerland to Camargue, the delta, which leads to the Mediterranean Sea. So it's even a transboundary uh, river. And, um, and I had a, a kind of discussion of how to implement that. And I got the same one in, in, in Derry. 
and what I think is really wise in the way the motion was voted uh, in Derry and Straban is the fact that the elected members didn't, you know, decided from the top that, okay, we will recognize the rights of nature. They, they propose, as you said, uh, uh, a roadmap where they can involve the citizens in the process of defining the rights. And, uh, and this is a key. When, when the, 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 the proposition comes from politicians, it's really important to, uh, uh, to put the citizen on board. And uh, we had a great experience in France with the Citizen Climate Convention that was set up uh, to propose uh, solutions to tackle climate change and to reduce our CO2 emissions. Um, Macron organized this climate convention because it was in front of a wall with the Gilets jaunes strike, with the climate justice strikes uh, and the march from the youth. And so he realized that he needed the citizen, you know, to to legitimate his choices. I must say that he betrayed them at the end, but the process in itself was really interesting because citizens, 150 citizens were um, chosen randomly from all regions in France, and you can adopt this same strategy at a district level from all um, uh, social classes, all genders, all ages. So there were like young people, like 16, 17, and, and retired people. There were workers, but also ent entrepreneurs, uh, teachers. And most of them were not very uh, informed about the consequences of climate change and the risk, and, and were not very concerned about the problem. But during nine months, uh, the government paid in order to uh, organize every weekend uh, conferences, debates, uh, informations given to those 150 citizens. I was auditioned by the, the, the convention uh, and I was in a contradictory debate with another lawyer who was not at all, you know, defending the same ideas. And they had to make their own uh, judgments and their, and their own proposals. And the result after nine months was just stunning because they were really experts. And and they became really convinced, and a lot of them even started then a, an organization, the 150s, they call it, and now they are activists, and some came into politics, um, and they adopted very radical solution that they would not have adopted if they were just, you know, asked through a, a petition or through a political program what they think about it about rights of nature, about changing the constitution. They went much further than what the government was expecting from them. And they adopted an ecosystemic uh, perspective. So they said, we cannot just propose you how to reduce CO2 emission. This is not enough. We have also to tackle the problem of, you know, loss of biodiversity, nitrogen, all the planetary boundaries. And they voted in favor of the crime of ecocide. They proposed that they voted in favor at 99.3%. That was the motion which was the most um, uh, supported by the citizens. And I was really impressed. And I think we have to be inspired by this because if politicians are uh, uh, 
uh, are sincere in, in their wish to advance that, they need to, to ask citizens to come on board and they need to, to let them be trained and informed in order that when they, they take the decision, they really are, you know, uh, uh, empowered to do it. And the legal advisor that I met in Darien Straban told me that I don't know exactly the whole system, but there are four pillars that have to be respected when implementing a regulation at the local level. And one of these pillars is, is um, uh, participative democracy, and that they are not using it a lot, but that might be the gate entry to advance uh, the process of involving the population within the process of defining the rights of nature at the district level. That's my advice. Fantastic. Rachel, do you want to come in there? Yeah, I wanted to think a little bit about um, secondary rights for, for nature and particularly rights of remedy for nature. Um, so I was very struck recently over the last couple of years to see the Colombia's transitional justice process deem the territories of indigenous communities and a black community as victims in their own right and this recognition of these uh, relationships between human victims and um, the environments in which they live. And I think what struck me in particular is that they're essentially saying a territory has a right to truth, to justice, to reparation. And I was interested in your thoughts on that. And particularly, is that the direction that we need to see with ecocide? You know, you, you mentioned Christopher Stone. Should trees have standing at the ICC? Should we see them as victim participants with rights of reparation? Yeah, and, and thank you for mentioning the case of Colombia because I think it's really the place where a new concept emerged, uh, especially with the Atrato River case where the Atrato River was recognized as a living entity and, uh, uh, and a legal personhood. But what decided the Constitutional Court at that time was, uh, of course, you need to have a voice for the river. They decided to nominate uh, 14 guardians of people living alongside the bank of the river. And, uh, and, and in the Choco, which is one of the places also where it's still dangerous uh, and, and still the peace process is, you know, at stake, I would say. And also there are a lot of extract, extractivism there. Um, they said, okay, the, the, the indigenous people and the Afro-descendants, uh, people who are living on the river will be guardians and will speak on behalf of the river uh, in court. And, and they, didn't, uh, they, they didn't stop there because that's the way usually it happens in the countries where the rights of nature are recognized. It could be the citizens, it could be the, the, the public ministry, like in Ecuador. Uh, uh, it could be NGOs, it could be local people living in the ecosystems. What he said is, it's more than recognizing the rights of nature or and recognizing the right of those people to live in a healthy environment. He said, we are speaking there about biocultural rights. And this is very interesting because the, the courts uh, joined the, the, the rights for a healthy environment uh, and the rights to, to live according to their ancestral culture to the rights uh, of nature to uh, exist, uh, thrive, uh, 
regenerate and be not polluted. And, and, and this is something, it's tricky, you know, when you speak about biocultural rights, because I discussed that a lot with, uh, with, uh, um, in, uh, in, in Derry, because, you know, the, the Irish culture is, is very strong. I'm Celtic myself. I'm from Brittany. I'm originally from Brittany. So I know that and I can feel it. You know, when I met the people in, in Derry, we, we went every day somewhere, like in the Ness Woods, on the Foyle River, in, in an, the very tiny ancient forest that is still there uh, on the coast at Malinhead. And I can, I can see the, the ancestral roots and the identity, which is uh, really um, linked to the, to the territory and, and to the place. And in a place like that, biocultural rights is, is for me, uh, um, you know, as a meaning. But of course, if, if you start to speak this way, with the, with the story you have, it might be sometimes difficult. But it's very interesting also to see that in Europe, where the rights of nature are emerging, are places where cultural identity is very strong. In France, it happened first where? In Corsica. And for the people I met in Corsica, I was there end of June, beginning of July. Uh, the citizens were fighting against um, um, uh, a, I'll say a dump. Uh, yes, a, a waste site. A, yeah. a waste site yeah. uh, nearby the, the river, the Tavignano River. And they are fighting since years in court and so on. And, and they, they they decided in July to write a rights of nature charter for the Tavidiano River, and then they asked the politicians to sign it and to come into the battle through the rights of the river. But when you discuss with them, it's really also because it's the island, it's Corsica, it's, it, it's their home. And they don't see their home as France, they see their home as Corsica. And when you speak about biocultural rights with them, it's, you know, it's obvious. It happened with the Sami people in Sweden. They, the parliament of the Sami people uh, were indigenous, uh, the last indigenous people really uh, recognized, I would say, by the United Nations um, uh, in Europe, in the Boreal Forest. They signed the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth, which was proposed in 2010 in Cochabamba in Bolivia. And they say, we will stand for the rights of nature. So that's, I just let it on the table, but, uh, but that's something which yeah, can be interested, but you have to adjust it to the context and, and to see if, um, if it, it will not raise, you know, uh, an opposition just on semantic, um, I think it's, it's, it's just important to say that you want to protect the land where you live and you are, you are related to this land, maybe not mentioning all of the time that it's because it's an ancestral land. Yeah, pretty good. I know that you're on your way to the, uh, 
the Rights of Nature, Nature Tribunal in Glasgow. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, it's, it will be hybrid. Uh, and uh, I was already the, a judge at the last tribunal, which was at the IUCN Congress in Marseille in September. So I let the seat to others because... <laughs> But yes, we, we organize, I'm, I'm an executive member uh, of the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature. Is it, it's a federation of uh, individuals and organizations around the world uh, campaigning for the rights of nature and advising uh, countries and, and, and cities and citizens on this. Uh, our headquarters are in Quito, in, in Ecuador, where the, the, the rights of nature are constitutionally recognized. And since uh, 2013, we organize international uh, tribunals, uh, but also local ones, according to problems that appears in Australia, in Chiquitina, in Bolivia. Or, uh, and the, the one which will take place in Glasgow um, is the fifth international one. The last one it was in Bonn and the one before we organized in Paris during COP21. This one was really huge. Uh, and the idea is, I would say, it's kind of pedagogy. It's showing when you take a human, uh, a human rights and indigenous rights and nature rights perspective in court, uh, and you propose real cases with real experts, with real witnesses, uh, what would be the judgment at the end? And, uh, and in Glasgow, we focused on two main issues, the Amazon forest and climate change. But we also organized uh, last year uh, to launch really the European Hub on the Rights of Nature that we started. And I, I proposed to, to, to our fellows there, um, uh, here uh, in North Island to join the, the Alliance. Uh, we, may, we organized the European Tribunal on the Rights of Nature and specifically on the rights of ecosystemic, um, ecosystems, sorry, aquatic ecosystems in Europe. So that was mainly rivers, sea, lake, uh, everywhere in Europe. And we, mm. and we did this tribunal during the IUCN Congress. That was very interesting. And it's very pedagogic because it, it really shows to the people how it could work. Uh, and it raised the issue because we always organize those tribunals when there is a big, you know, event, a big uh, COP, uh, in order to, to show, to be out of the box and, and to show how it could work if we adopt this ecocentric uh, perspective. I'm, I'm interested in the uh, sort of long-term implications of uh, both the ecocide and rights of nature debate, because as you say, it has massive social and economic implications. It's really unwinding, uh, uh, you know, even at an ontological, but also um, from the perspective of property. You know, it begins to correct a deep bias in the system, which is driven by the dominant economic narrative, capitalism. Can you say a little bit more about the long-term implications, the deep implications of this conversation um, for the social and economic paradigm that 
is really driving and has been responsible for stripping out a lot of the, effectus, the effectiveness of human rights as well as our environmental laws. So, yeah, that's a debate we had uh, when uh, we proposed a constitutional amendment in France uh, to have a more ecological and social uh, justice um, constitution. And that was debated uh, in, in the assembly and it was also debated at the, the, the Citizen Convention on Climate. And of course, you know, the constitutional lawyers always say, but how, how can we fit the rights of nature and uh, uh, individual freedom and property rights? And that was so interesting because um, I explained that you can have even both in the law or even in the constitution. And it's the same when I was speaking about uh, inviting the voice of an ecosystem at the table of a negotiation when you have to decide about a project that you have to do for your town. It's exactly the same perspective is if, if they have, if they have um, the same uh, weight, then there is a consensus to find and there is a discussion uh, between and I would say uh, a discussion which will be driven by a long-term perspective instead of a short-term one. And so you can have the river speaking for his intrinsic value and his own interest. You will have the corporate, you will have uh, maybe, you know, the civil workers uh, saying we don't want to lose our jobs. Uh, you have the farmers, you have everyone around the table. And, uh, and then it, it really depends the way you, you, you deal with the discussion, saying, okay, do we look at the short-term profit or the short-term interest of some part of the people? Do we look at the long-term? And uh, there is a lawyer uh, who is working on ecocide and rights of nature in the Netherlands, uh, Jan van de Venis, who is, uh, he was uh, the ombudsman for future generation in the Netherlands. He was appointed for that. And he's, when he works with the people, and I think it's really an interesting way to work, uh, he makes the exercise saying, okay, tell us your interest at the moment according to the, the issue, the problem you have to deal with. And usually the people, they look at their own interest and on a very short term. And then he said, okay, think about your ancestors seven generations back, where they were, how they were living, what they wanted for for their children, grand, grand, grandchildren. And now think about the result of your choice in seven generations. And he's doing this exercise with um, uh, politicians, with activists, with, uh, with corporates uh, or CEOs. And it changed totally the way they think. And, and sometimes they really decide for the greater good, even if they have to lose something. And what was very interesting when I had this debate uh, in France, I was explaining that, and there was a constitutional lawyer and he was a state counselor. And she was saying, oh, but um, you, you understand that then it means that we have to decrease this constitutional rights to property rights, to individual freedom, which is, you know, the, the essence of our democracy or, and our republic. 
but it's possible. And uh, I said, yes, it's possible because law is changing all the time. Law is, the, for me, the, the mirror of where we are in our values, uh, where we are in, in our moral, uh, you know, uh, uh, parameters. And, uh, and today, no one will uh, go reverse on women rights, on uh, the abolition of slavery means that law can change. Yes, 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 okay. And 10 days later, the French Constitutional Court uh, was uh, uh, dealing with a case with the Monsanto, Syngenta, uh, all the big, you know, pharma corporates um, saying that they have the right to sell their uh, pesticides. And, and the court said, you know, we have a charter on biodiversity, which is, has a constitutional value. And the interest of nature in this case is bigger than your profits. And I say, hey. So again, it's a court. But it's really important because it's, it's a case law. It's it made a jurisprudence. Uh, and, um, and so I'm confident that we can find ways. It doesn't mean that nature will win. All the time. Uh, if you look at Ecuador, you had maybe 50 uh, trials since, since 2008. Two-thirds were won in favor of the ecosystems and projects were stopped uh, or avoided because I think that's the main value of the rights of nature uh, is that it has a preventive uh, effect, which doesn't have enough, I think, environmental laws at the moment, which is more about how to restore, how to compensate, uh, and how to punish when the crime has been, or the disaster has, has already arrived. And like in France, we have the ecological prejudice, which is a kind of, you know, ecocentric perspective because nature today has its intrinsic value, but you can go to court only when the disaster has happened. And sometimes Disaster is so huge that you cannot expect biodiversity to, to be restored. So the preventive approach is very interesting. And, and when you have to deliberate on an on a industrial project, everyone, you know, around the table will have a word to say. And you don't know who will win at the end. And I don't know. I don't say that it's sometimes it's, it's important to, to, to look at social justice and you might have to wait because it will have too much impact because the transition methods are not implemented already or trainings for the people to shift from, I don't know, a coal mine uh, to, uh, to a, power, a wind power uh, uh, industry. But it's worth it to try. And um, yeah, I think it's worth it. And um, I miss my point, but um... well, maybe I can ask a kind of follow up question there, um, building on what Peter was asking about how we balance, you know, these emerging rights with more traditional rights to property. And I was thinking on the international level about the right to development, um, and is there a risk with the rights of nature? But I'm thinking also about ecocide here, of it becoming a case of the global north 
kind of judging the development aspirations of the global south. So how how do we weigh up this kind of global inequality and the rights of states that have been held back by the very colonialism that you mentioned at the start? We cannot uh, look at the rights of nature uh, concept uh, out of the system and out of the of the decision that uh, our already our discussed today, for example, in Glasgow, uh, we have a responsibility uh, in in climate change and the, the destruction of uh, of nature as um, as the most biggest polluters. And you have you and that's not you know. Uh, that's important to understand that, for example, the first countries who requested to recognize the crime of ecocide were uh, islands, Vanuatu and the Maldives, Pacific Islands and in, uh, Ocean, Indian Ocean Islands, because they are, of course, in front of the, but also because they are seeking for climate justice for them. And so they consider that recognizing the crime of ecocide will be a wonderful tool for them to oblige the polluters to comply to their uh, engagement. And don't forget that the engagement is not only to reduce the CO2 emission, but it's to help the South with 100,000 uh, billions per year to help them to adapt and to be more resilient uh, and, um, and then to shift from may maybe the... Uh, the, the energies they can use, like coal plants and so on, um, to, to more sustainable energies. So you cannot separate the idea of implementing the rights of nature or the crime of ecocide without keeping the, the promise, the promise uh, that we will help the South and that we will do uh, the main efforts, which was in the climate agreement uh, deal, that you have to recognize the, um, a shared responsibility, but differentiated. Uh, how do you say? Yeah, shared but differentiated responsibility. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. And and this has to be kept. This 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 idea has to be kept absolutely. Um, yeah. Can we can we think about? The ICC in that context, you know, because the ICC, uh, as you know, gets subjected to contested criti critiques that it's politically biased, that it's racially biased. And certainly, even if that's not true, it has not yet managed to prosecute anyone from the global north. Is there a risk that it becomes another, it becomes a tool for holding back environmental harms that happen in the global south, but it doesn't really have a lot of teeth for some of the main perpetrators. I, I fully agree with you that if the crime of ecocide is recognized by the ICC, it will have, it will have mainly a symbolic effect and a moral effect that a line cannot be crossed anymore. In terms of effectiveness, um, ICC has very few means. Uh, and uh, also due to the fact that the, the richest members are not paying their their share, that's very clear. Uh, so we are also responsible for that. And um, and I know that African countries are very cautious because at the moment it was mainly African leaders 
who were trialed. Uh, and so I discussed with some, uh, some African activists and, uh, and politicians, and I said, we are in favor of the crime of ecocide, but if it has to, you know, to be us again, uh, to be here on the stage, no. I mean, and, and this, I fully understand the concern. But um, if the crime is recognized at the ICC level, the, all the countries who have ratified the statute will have to recognize the crime of ecocide at the national level. And also it will give a universal jurisdiction and a universal competences to the national judges to trial ecocide in their own country, but also outside. And this at least is a very strong uh, tool. The problem today we have to deal with, with the Stop Ecocide Foundation, is that some countries want to take the leadership, and for example, France, uh, the, the majority and the government refused uh, the proposal of law that we, we proposed as a um, definition of the crime of ecocide. Uh, but to please everyone, put in the last uh, law that uh, was voted last summer, which is a law on climate and resilience, the recognition of an offense of ecocide. And at the same time, Macron tells everyone around the world that he will push forward the recognition of the crime of ecocide at the ICC. And he said, but this is so hypocrite. And also it's more than hypocrite. It's, um, uh, it, it's painful because it, you know, it, it's, uh, how do you say it? Uh, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't help the cause. Uh, and I, I, I told the government, I say, if you recognize only an offense of ecocide, it means that you can recognize an offense of genocide, an offense of, you know, against humanity. And you don't, or you don't understand what is an ecocide. We are not speaking about, uh, environmental, uh, criminality. We are speaking about a worse crime, which is also a very rare case. So that's why I'm saying it's, it draws a moral line, which is very important. Uh, but if you recognize it at the national level, then you have to follow this, the same idea. And recognizing an offense is just, you know, okay, you can recognize an offense, but uh, you understand the difference because in French, uh, we don't, we use the word crime only for uh, the criminal law. Yeah. And then regulatory offences. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, um, and so it's not, in, that's why it's tricky to explain in English because it really doesn't have the same level uh, and the same power. But, uh, but many countries start really to, to think about recognizing a crime of ecocide at the national level, and this can be powerful. One of the things that you've mentioned uh, in your talk and a couple of times has been the role of indigenous peoples around the world in pushing for these movements. How do we make sure that we fully in engage those people's agency and advocacy in this movement? And how do we avoid rights of nature becoming another kind of colonial tool where we, you know, implement our rights of nature into dominant structures that still don't recognize their custodianship or their collective rights? 
So that's why I'm part of the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, because we have uh, in the board a lot of indigenous leaders, uh, and they are really the one we listen the most. And uh, they also proposed, as I explained, we, we, we started to have some regional herbs, thematic herbs, and there, there is also um, an indigenous herb in the Global Alliance, that, would, that feeds with their recommendation all the others. Um, and they're always there uh, at the tribunals, uh, each campaign that we make. And, and when, we, when we give advice uh, to uh, countries, to citizens, it's always according to what was decided uh, as, you know, the roadmap or the words that we should use with them, like Casey Camp Orinek, she's a panka, like uh, Tom Gotus, who is the, the executive uh, chair of uh, the Indigenous Environmental Network, uh, like Patricia Galinga, like, uh, um, and for me, it's, it's really essential. But I just want, if I can, I don't know if we have time, but I want to tell you something about the rights of nature and indigenous people. A lot of people think that rights of nature concept came from the indigenous people. And that's why it's so strange and so different from our culture. But that's not true. That's not true. The indigenous people, and I discussed even with Casey, who passed uh, um, a law in our nation, the Ponca Nation of Oklahoma, only in 2016 on the rights of nature. And she explained to me, uh, she for us, it was a bit strange, you know, to recognize the rights of nature. Uh, and it, in fact, it started in the U.S., as I explained, but uh, it was a consensus when they drafted the constitution in Ecuador with the indigenous people, with the, the academics, uh, uh, which were uh, descendants of the colonizers, huh? uh, even if they were working with indigenous people said, we don't understand, I mean, because nature is there. Nature was there before we arrived. So the right of nature to exist is just non-negotiable. It's, you know, it, it's, um, it's more than inalienable rights. It's, uh, she was there, we are part of her and we have we have to learn to, to, to manage what, what is around us. And so it's not even customary law or it took, it took ways of in customary law in the way the people used to share the resources with the animals, with the plants in the same territory. And, and so it became rules, uh, traditional rules, but they didn't need a name for that. And they started to understand the interest to recognize the rights of nature when they understood that it could provoke a paradigm shift and it could make a bridge between their customary law and Western law. And that they could use it to stand in court and stop the projects which were uh, threatening their territories, their nations, uh, like uh, uh, pipelines, uh, like fracking. Uh, industries like extravism, like 
the Alberta Tar Sands for the people who, who live around. Um, and at that moment, they said, okay, that can be a tool to fight the colonizers. But it arrived quite late. And if you look at the thinkers of the rights of nature movement, okay, there was Christopher Stone, but there was Thomas Berry. And Thomas Berry uh, is a white guy. Uh, and uh, and Arnes with the deep ecology concept. It's from Norway. So I always loved, you know, when people say, hey, this is indigenous uh, and it's folklore and, and we don't understand. No, it's just a new way to think the law and to think our relationship with the environment uh, that we should not call, I think, anymore environment. Because when you say environment, you speak about something which surrounds you, you are in the center of it and you are not part of it. So that's why I like the word nature and I'm not ashamed to speak about nature or, or life, if you want, or or the earth system, you can use the word you want, but. I think you're right. The, uh, the framing or the continued framing of this debate as a, an indigenous discourse is a way to distance and to avoid, and to, uh, avoid and maybe deprive it of some of the legitimacy that's now beginning to gather. We have a, a question from uh, a friend online. Um, so. The question is, I Valerie, in terms of biocultural rights, what can we learn from the relationship between the rights of nature and nomadic peoples? So he cited the example of uh, Australian Aboriginal peoples and uh, those on the North American continent. Do you see this to be linked with the prospect of mass climate migration? Uh, from non-nomadic uh, peoples in the global south to the global north as a result of uh, climate change. So there are for me two questions in one. The first one, and uh, I think we have to speak up to tonight if I want to. <laughs> but my, my book was translated in English by Indian translator, so it's not perfect, but uh, you can find it. Um, Rights for Planet Earth with a foreword of Vandana Shiva. Uh, the whole concept of the rights of nature, of planetary boundaries, and even of the ideas of recognizing a legal status to the natural commons raised the issue not only on property rights, but also on national sovereignty and boundaries. And so it's, it's like, um, you know, vertiginous, but that's what I did in my book. I tried to imagine how it could really shake this, which, you know, we look at it as granted, but when you're on the moon and you watch at the, at the earth, it's one planet, it's one home, human beings in one species on it. On it. And, uh, and the, the old system of nationalism, um, and also one of the reasons that international law failed and the UN system failed is because they kept as a pivot uh, value the national sovereignty. That's why all the agreements are not really binding. That's why Trump can go out of the Paris Agreement when, when he did it. 
and and so we are in a system uh, where uh, instead of cultivating for me two other level of um, uh, humanism, which is universal uh, humanism, considering humanity as one and nature as one and humanity part of this nature uh, and also recognizing the rights of local people, local territories to their own uh, sovereignty or their own even uh, food sovereignty, for example, uh, and their own rights to draw some laws. What happened in the U.S. with the fact that the cities can, can pass laws is that the people decided to recognize the rights of local communities and, the, and, and natural communities at the same time. So they, they recognize their own rights as people to defend their land and the, and the rights of uh, the ecosystems in, we, in, in which they live. And this is very interesting. And I think that we, if we want to cultivate solidarity and fraternity with the, the, the migrating uh, crisis which is happening and, and will happen very fast, we are speaking about 250 millions of people uh, in 10 years. We are speaking about two billions of human beings who will be displaced uh, up to the end of the century or even before 2080. So it's, we can't imagine even what, what does it mean. So what shall we do? We vote for uh, populist, nationalist leaders and we build real walls like Poland is doing in Bianovieza forest and the, and the Adrian wall again everywhere. Are we open, you know, uh, to this universal vision of saying we are one, we have a common responsibility of what's going on, and we find solutions together because we have to deal with it. And that's why I'm, I'm still, you know, carrying this campaign because the time is very short. The economical collapse or the economical crisis, I believe, is going to happen quite fast at the same time that the ecological collapse. And if we don't do this, uh, this paradigm shift in our, in our vision, in our values, in our law, then it's going to be bored and chaotic. And we are really suing the branch where we sit and, uh, and, and the human species is really at stake at the moment. So if you don't want to do it for nature, do it at least for your own species. Because if at the end you will have, what, 100,000 people living very comfortably under a dome or, or in space, uh, because we found fantastic technologies to escape from the climate or the ecological crisis, it will be a very, very small percentage of people who will benefit of that. The other ones will be just, you know, massive refugee camp everywhere. And, uh, and those ones who will live in comfort in a dead planet, on a dead planet, are the ones who are making profit today on people and the planet. Amen. Yeah. I'm loath to mention Matt Damon in such a cultured uh, and intelligent conversation, but I started to watch Elysium uh, the other day and I had to turn it off because it was too realistic. I, I don't want to have to it's exactly the this. way it's exactly Elysium was really uh, and there was a French writer also who wrote a book which is very similar 
but it's really the way I, I think the world can turn yeah. to if we, if we are not careful enough. There's another question um, from an audience member and I can see it so I can read it out if you like. Uh, so it says, um, hello, Valerie, I have a question regarding the protection of the rights of nature in courts. If more stringent laws on the rights of nature were to be passed, especially in Western countries, who do you think should be responsible for representing the rights of nature in the courts and preparing the legal arguments? Uh, it's a tricky question. Um... I think it really depends on the countries and the way it works. Uh, because when we speak about the rights of nature, it seems that we speak about something very global. But the rights of nature concept should be, for example, embedded in the constitution as a principle. But then who is going to court is a specific ecosystem, a specific species. If you speak about a specific ecosystems, it seems to me that... Uh, the, um, the way Ecuador deal with it is a good way. It means that the people who live locally there could go to court to represent uh, the interest of the ecosystem. Uh, and if you have uh, an independent justice, then you can expect also uh, even the public ministry or the prosecutor to speak on behalf of, uh, uh, of the ecosystems if the constitution allows him to do it. And of course, uh, I would say environmental NGOs, uh, but not only. If we, if we stick on the system we have in France, we cannot do, for example, class actions. That's why I'm, I'm saying it's, it really depends on the country. We cannot do class actions. So when we, we made our climate case against the state that we won, we were four NGOs, and then we asked the citizen to sign a petition online, and we got 2 million point three signatures in a month. But they were not part of the trial. Uh, so that's why I think citizens have to be more involved in the process. And, but in France, I would not say that the prosecutor should be involved because uh, our justice is not anymore independent uh, since it was decided that there will be a Ministry of Justice and the Ministry of Justice will be the head of the, uh, of the, the system, the legal system. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say it, but uh, yeah. The separation of powers in France is slipping uh, away, <laughs> slipping away. So citizens and, and, and especially, we can say any citizens because, you know, we all belong to, to, to one main ecosystems. But if we, if we decide to recognize biocultural rights, then it should be the citizens who live in the, in the place. Just uh, to end, um... Henri, I, I must say, you've uh, recalled a very pleasant memory of uh, Polly Higgins visiting the school and uh, uh, holding a number of discussions with our students. So I think we still have some of those recordings available. I wonder if uh, you might end by offering a few words to our student body, um, especially those who are... Um, thinking about their careers, uh, maybe want to do something uh, with their energy and their careers and their legal training in a way that will uh, complement and uh, um, expand on some of the ideas that you've rehearsed today. What would you say to the students who are 
um, thinking about a career and how maybe are resonating with some of the interests and the, the analysis that you've offered today. Yeah. I don't know if it happened in UK, but um, in France, since the, the climate march started, uh, I've been approached by a lot of um, students' organizations from uh, big schools, schools which, you know, are known as, okay, um, liberal uh, and also, also left-handed, but also uh, schools that train the people to be the CEOs of tomorrow. And um, like business school, like, uh, or the administration, uh, um, the high administration school, uh, or uh, Sciences Po, which is science politics, which is very famous around the world. And what did the students is that they ally uh, and and they made some kind of uh, organization and they published tribunes, articles in Le Monde, in the main media, like 50,000, some sign, I remember once uh, from business school saying, we will not work for the polluters. We'll not apply to any jobs. And then within their own um, organization, they push their own school to disinvest from fossil fuels, and it worked. Uh, and, uh, and so it's a kind of, okay, we, we agree to study. Uh, we agree to be part of, you know, of the story, but uh, we commit ourselves not to feed the beast. Uh, and it shaked the... It checked a lot the corporate uh, unions and uh, because they, whoa, you know, we try to format them because some schools are really, when, you, when they are private, they really format your mind and it's not working anymore. I would say that. And then, uh, of course, they can, like Maeve, she's Maeve O'Neill, she's 33 years old. She's an activist since she's a child. Our parents were activists if I, if I, I met them and they were really inspiring. And I think you can manage to, to work, to be an activist, to enter into politics and, uh, and to stay connected all, at the same time, you know, to, to, to nature and, uh, and, uh, and civil rights movements. And, and you can make a change. You can make a difference by, um, by pushing forward this, um, and in France, I will give you another example. We started in 2015 uh, an organization on climate justice. And today there are 100 uh, young lawyers who are volunteering in the NGO. And we are the one who put on trial the state and we just won. And we prepared the case for two years and a half. And all those young lawyers, they were just still studying or making, you know, their masters, their thesis, or uh, just finishing, and some just passed the bar, but they were volunteering for us, and um, and I'm I'm the oldest in the in the NGO. They are all between twenty and thirty five, I would say, even at the at the board. Uh, and then we 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 went to Oxfam to Greenpeace, and we said, okay, please join us in the, in the climate case against the state. Said, okay, let's go. 
and they put, you know, uh, some, some help, some money for the campaign. And, and the YouTubers came on board and they made a video. And that's how we got 1 million signatures in three days, 2.3 in a month. And at the end, the court gave us reason that uh, the government is not complying to, to the objective it fixed and, uh, and, has the, uh, and it has now just one year to, uh, up to December 2022 to prove that they will really decrease the emissions. And if they don't do it, then there will be injunction and, and fines and so on. So just to show that the young people can do amazing thing and according to their own competence. And we are in the school of law. And, I, and if you want any contact with uh, our young lawyers who are uh, working on climate justice and, and environmental justice and on the crime of ecocide too, and on rights of nature too, because that's the mandate of the name of the NGO is Notre Affaire à tous, our affair to all, our affair. And, um, I can connect students with students and, and they can, you know, learn from each other about uh, experiences. Valerie Cabernet, thank you very much for your, for all your work. It's been quite an inspiration and uh, we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.